everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games. As told by the very people who organized them, I'm Christian Napier, and today we're joined by Ron Cameron, who has been highly praised by several of our previous podcast guests. And uh, Ron, it's an honor to have you on our podcast this fine morning. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine, and thank you for those kind words and, and those who spoke them. I, as I told you a little bit earlier, I did manage to listen to some of the previous podcasts, and uh, those who were kind, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yes, I thank them also, and I also thank them for encouraging me to reach out to you to participate on this podcast. Uh, I'm really, really looking forward to it. Now, before we get back to the memories of Salt Lake, let's talk a little bit about what we're doing these days. Um, it looks like you're joining me from your home. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I, I live on the East Coast, just outside of Boston. I, in fact, have been here for my wife and I have been in this same place for 30 years. So uh, this was home back in Salt Lake time also. And it looks like it's sunny. Is it nice? Uh, is it nice weather back there in Boston well, right now? Uh, nice is uh, open to interpretation. It's sunny. It's it's one of those days that you think should be in August. It's uh, going to be hot and very humid today. Um, we've had a string of those, but uh, we we live on the coast and the the oceans across the street, so. You won't hear me complaining a whole lot about that. Now, aside from enjoying life there across the street from the ocean, are you working on anything uh, interesting these days? Well, um, the answer is no. And uh, that uh, has to do with, uh, I think, what we're all experiencing and the COVID uh, uh, experiment or not so much an experiment, the, the COVID experience, I should say, has uh, all of us uh, on a little different life path right now. Um, I think you know that, uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, but I, I come from the music industry, music and entertainment industry, and that's in fact what I've gone back to when I haven't been doing Olympic planning, and um, that's pretty... Uh, pretty much not happening right now, live events. Um, and I tend to focus on uh, larger st stadium-sized concert tours and things like that and shows. And um, who knows when we'll be able to even begin to take those on again. I totally feel your pain. I'm in this major event space, as many of the people that we've interviewed for the podcast have still remained in this in this space. And And I've said before, it's probably going to be the last industry that really gets back up and running because who wants to sit in a stadium with 60,000 screaming fans? Yeah. And, um, you know, I know people are trying and uh, we've all kind of shopped around great ideas. But, um, you know, that that artist contact with the people right in front of them out there on a stage, um, it's hard to replace that. It, it's irreplaceable, I would say. And um, how we get back to something like that, I think we're all interested in seeing what, you know, the next month, spring and maybe the next year. Well, let's just keep our fingers crossed for that vaccine. I hope that happens sooner rather than later. I think we all are hopeful for that. Yep. Okay, well, let's wind the clock back here, Ron. Let's talk about some happy times. Yeah, okay. Uh, to start us off, 
I'd like to understand what you were doing before you joined the committee and how did you find yourself in Salt Lake City? Well, uh, it goes back a little bit uh, earlier. Um, my first games was Atlanta. Um, and I ended up, I, I got a call uh, to see if I was interested in coming to Atlanta from my friend Mike Loind, who I had worked with previously in uh, the music industry. Um, Mike is also a, a Boston boy, and uh, and he asked if I was interested in coming to Atlanta. They needed a site manager for Georgia Dome. And at that time, I was uh, doing a lot of site management for large tours like Paul McCartney and the Eagles and things like that. So he thought the fit would be easy. Um, he asked me to come down and meet with Jerry Anderson, which I did, um, and Doug Arnott. Um, and uh, they ended up hiring me, and I ended up in Atlanta. And I was only there for about five months, but uh, you know, basically went into Georgia Dome, uh, had basketball and gymnastics, and came out five months later. It was that that intense a job, but I loved it. Um, I went back and continued along that vein for the years in between Salt Lake, and I. Um, I was continuing to tour, and uh, Doug uh, Richard Besimer actually got in touch with me uh, in uh, on at Doug's request, Doug Arnott, and uh, asked if I would be interested in, in a senior planning job. At the time, uh, the planners, the senior planners, were focusing on clusters, and Salt, the Salt Lake cluster was what uh, they were interested in talking about. So. Um, that indeed happened, and I, I came out for a visit to Salt Lake and uh, loved it. I mean, I just thought it was great and a good challenge. I, I ended up uh, having to, I focused uh, willingly on uh, downtown, um, including uh, some of the changes that were going to have to happen for Metals Plaza and that whole uh, area downtown that became uh, a fenced-in area, um, and the stadium, RES, uh, Bicycle Stadium. Um, when it got a little closer to the games, I had to choose my focus, and um, I really wanted to uh, be involved in the ceremonies piece. Um, so that's that's what I chose. They had, they had already identified good venue managers uh, for the Delta Center and uh, Metals Plaza and Kelly and Jean Marie. Um, so the uh, logic for me was to to go there anyway. So um, that that ended up being my primary focus. Well, you mentioned uh, uh, Mike Loind and uh, Richard Besimer. They worked World Cup 94 and uh, also then, you know, and with Steve Mirabile and then went to Sydney. And I remember meeting them once they came to Salt Lake City. So give us a sense of the timing. When when was it that you actually joined the committee? Uh, let's see. It would have been just around 2000, right? The uh, the transition had happened, the scandal and, and some of the changes. Um and uh, it was a time where I had, uh, I think I had a gap in my time between tours. And uh, so I, uh, I agreed to come out for a visit. And uh, yeah, it happened pretty quickly, actually. 
So then uh, the first year I moved out there, uh, my wife, uh, Debbie, who's joined me on a couple of these experiences, uh, she ended up in Salt Lake for the second year. Um, and uh, we did the same thing in Vancouver. And then uh, we just uh, we closed up our home here uh, for the second year and we were out there. That's fantastic. Now, tell us about organizing a ceremonies, you know, that's uh, probably one of the most complex events in, in a games. You, you've got all this security heads of state. You have a massive cast and a show. You have all these athletes marching in. It's a tremendous undertaking. Uh, what was that like? Well, um, you know, just just to be clear for those uh, those who might listen and, and don't understand the organization very well, um, I was not producing the ceremonies in this role. I was uh, leading the operations for the the team uh, in the stadium uh, where we we hosted the ceremonies. So our key client, like most of the other venues had a sport, our sport was ceremonies. Um, and ceremonies is, as you pointed out, very demanding in terms of um, you want them to be able to accomplish all of their dreams. Um, and I always look at it in, in that position that our place is to say yes and make things happen for them if it if it can work and uh, it can also work for the operations of the stadium um you know there's there's sort of two goals to have a great show is of the number one goal um but part of that experience is is the rest of the experience how people are delivered to the stadium how the flow happens in the stadium how the functional areas can accomplish all the things they need to accomplish and um, no matter how big a stadium looks you never have enough space and uh, all the spaces are programmed down almost to the second well what's really interesting about what you said is that your job was to say yes and at the same time, the nature of the infrastructure that you're dealing with, both the venue itself and then the surrounding area, along with the financial constraints, often point to saying no to things. So <laughs> how do you resolve this uh, inherent conflict with, like, yes, we want to please, we want to put on the greatest show ever. And at the same time, you do have some constraints that you have to deal with. Well, there's always that. You know, the, the other constraint is, was uh, the University of Utah. We had, we had a great partner in the University of Utah who uh, obviously owned the stadium and um, had control of the stadium. Uh, and then all the campus was the surrounding terrain that we worked within. Um, and it, it provided some great opportunities in terms of use, being able to use some of their buildings and facilities. Obviously, all the facilities we used up there, almost all of them belong to the university. So um, you always have the, the agreement for usage that's written when the games are awarded, but then there's the reality of what, what your needs are on the ground when you start working with ceremonies and, and uh, understanding the, the timings for everything. So um, 
you work at that document and, and you adapt it accordingly. And like I said, we had a great team uh, from the university. Um, there was a team, uh, Wayne McCormick, Pete Vanderhave, and Norm Chambers, who represented the university. And um, I have to say we heard yes from them more often than no. Um, or yes, but how can we make this work? And we need you to adjust the, the timings of taking this space so we can be whole for classes and, uh, you know, our parking demands and things like that. Um, the same with ceremonies. I mean, there were, there were things that they wanted to do that um, they, I won't say they didn't do because I think we accomplished uh, pretty much what, what they dreamed up, but um, there were just restrictions on <clears throat> when people could pass in spaces because, you know, with the crowd demands and things like that, you, you just had to acknowledge that and how we're able to deliver people to the stadium. You have to be able to do that. It can't all be about the show. It has to, it has to be people there for the show. So you're going through and you're doing all of this detailed planning to pull off a, an amazing operation there at Rice Eccles. And then 9-11 happens. All the plans start to change. <laughs> How did it impact your operation there in the Rice Eccles Stadium? Well, uh, I think what it, we all didn't really know what to do from the beginning. Um, as uh, I think you know, it became a national security event right after that. and. Um, the Secret Service became much more prominent as a result. This was the, their first experience at being the, the security agency for a national security event. So they were learning a bit um, about, you know, what, what this was about and how they needed to operate themselves. Um, but things just got tighter, and we certainly started asking a lot more questions about what could and couldn't happen. Um, obviously, we had already known that uh, there was a probable visit from the president, so security was going to be at a certain point anyway, and um, everything ratcheted up from there as a result of 9-11. And some incredibly uh, emotional and uh, uh, well, emotional moments uh, happened as part of the show, uh, directly resulting from 9-11, as I'm sure you remember. I do. And many of our podcast guests, many of our colleagues point to that ceremony as a goosebump moment, as one of the highlights of, of their games experience. I want to come back to the operation itself. Uh, ceremonies and opening ceremony for the game is is oftentimes it's the it's the first real broad event of the games and and um, and so you do some rehearsals to try to get ready for that. I'm just curious about the rehearsals. Were there certain things that you or lessons that you learned during the rehearsals that helped? Uh, smooth the operation for the actual games and um, any particular challenges in actually delivering the operation of the ceremonies? Well, I have a whole list of challenges, but um, I'll, I'll address the beginning of the question first. Um, one thing in particular I recall from the dress rehearsal um, for people who, uh, to refresh people's memory, we have a pre-dress rehearsal and that's with a, a lesser crowd. I think it was 15 to 
20,000 people out of the almost 60,000 we had for opening and closing. Um, that helps people start to understand their job and, and get their systems down. Um, you know, for those who haven't worked in the stadium, just understanding the process of helping people find their seats, all of those things. Um, you know, sometimes event services is more successful in getting existing ushers to come on um, and sometimes less so. So each game, those those dress rehearsals are incredibly important. I, I had a, a case in another thing. It was a Pan-American Games where they didn't want to have audience. Um, this was down in Brazil to the dress rehearsal. And this was in a stadium where they never gave people specific seats and um, really had to fight with them to convince them that they they had to do this so it was going to be a disaster on uh, the opening ceremonies day um, we that was not the case in uh, salt lake we we had a full house for dress rehearsal um, it it enables you to understand your throughputs and things like that through the you know the whole system magnetometers getting people to the stadium it's never a complete dress rehearsal like there's always pieces of the system that you can't replicate because it's too disruptive to the the city to do everything um you won't have the athletes march for instance uh, so that whole transport pieces out um and the delivery systems for the people might be a little bit different because the all the equipment isn't available and you know Lots of those kind of situations. However, it's as close as you're going to get, and you get to throughput an entire crowd from an operational standpoint. Um, I, I digressed a little bit. So in the pre-dress um, or in the dress rehearsal, we had a situation where we loaded the venue. Okay, we did a pretty good job. Um, during the egress, when we had a full house, it became painfully clear that we were dependent on a very few entrances and egresses, and we were sending people in directions that they weren't used to going in. The problem, it wasn't a problem, but it's something we needed to acknowledge with the dress rehearsals was that it was all Utah people, and they were used to going in certain directions in the stadium, and no matter what the indicators were, they were going to, you know, the way they've always gone. So we had a case where um, there was a down staircase that people were used to going out of the stadium and entrance, but that dumped you right into where the athletes were going to be entering and exiting. So we had cut that stadium off, but people went there anyway, and it turned into a pretty ugly crush of people trying to get out of the stream and get out of the stadium quickly. Um, so we learned we had to do better with that, and uh, they had to make sure that that exit was not an option. I have to go on a bit of a tangent. You mentioned the Pan American Games in Brazil. Right. That was in Rio 2007. I was actually uh, working on those games also right. in the area of workforce. And one of my favorite ceremonies moments in the Pan American Games was when um what's his name uh, Vasquez Vasquez the 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 head of uh 
Paso, you know, gets up to do his oh. speech in the ceremony. And he starts out with the word oi, which in <laughs> Spanish means today, but in Portuguese means hello. And so all the people in the stadium thought that he was saying hello. And he kept trying to say today. So he said oi again. And they said oi back. And uh, 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 they did that three times. And, uh, and I absolutely love that memory. It was, uh, it was a totally unintended blessing <laughs> of the ceremony. So I really enjoyed that. Right. And, that, and that's one of the great things about the games, those um, those. Those things with languages, you know, sometimes they they get you into trouble, but a lot of times they're exactly like that, where, you know, there's, uh, there's another little shade to it that makes it amusing or, uh, or conversational. Well, thank you for indulging my short digression <laughs> into yeah. the Rio Pan American Games. It is quite funny. I've had several people from Rio listen to this podcast and say, you know, we should do this podcast down in Rio and remember these Pan American games or remember the, uh, the Rio 2016 game. So it's a, it's quite interesting. I'm guessing there'll be more of these. I, th I think this was a great idea. What other stories, Ron, do you have in your memory banks um, that you would like to share with us today? Well, um, you, you talked about some challenges um, and, you know, a, a few more uh, just uh, to help people understand the, the, the picture. Um, getting people to Rice-Eccles Stadium was always considered a challenge and um, the there were federal funds made available for the new track system, as you know, and I think uh, one or two of the others may have mentioned this, that um, as particularly after 9-11, as we understood the security implications and, and really even before that, we at this stadium knew that it was going to be impossible to bring the trains right up to the stadium the way it had been designed um however it was uh, it was a difficult political situation to be announcing that and to be uh, and to be pushing for that um and we had some difficult meetings with tracks representatives and uh and slock representatives and the team and in trying to figure out you know, how we were going to get a plan together for this. Um, and the way it was, and it sort of came down to the, the, the inevitable question of who's going to deliver the bad news, right? I mean, it, it, was, it was an obvious decision to a lot of us, but um, because it was political, it was extremely difficult. Um, that's where the Secret Service came in and... Um, you know, they announced at a meeting that uh, that they would not permit tracks to come up to the stadium for obvious reasons. You know, rail cars delivering people as well as other possible packages. It's far too proximate to the stadium. Um, so that you know, that's one that played out for a long time, um, but got to the right decision in the end, and and then. The rest of it was what what did tracks have to do to stay whole? And they ended up uh, installing a track switching uh, at the at one station down below the stadium, and that's where they delivered people to. Um, you know, again, getting to the schedule we talked about. Uh, it, it's with ceremonies, um, and I'm not sure 
even within organizing committees, uh, how well people understand this, even after all of these uh, games. Um, it's always on a different planning path than the rest of the games. The, the sports has have so many knowns and, and parameters that they can really put into place and, and sort of understand what their planning stream is. Um, with ceremonies, at the time the rest of the organization is doing their ceremonies is creating their show. So, you know, when things are going to happen within the show, um, what it's going to be and, and what kind of movements and things have to happen and even what kind of spaces are going to be required for that. It just takes a lot longer to play out. And if it's additional land acquisition, you can imagine that takes longer to play out. So um, it's frustrating for your team because they're going in, into organizational meetings within SLOC and, you know, they're but the operations managers, for instance, are supposed to deliver answers in these uh, to different uh, subject matter, uh, allegedly final plans. But we all know that we're not there yet. So that that adds um, a little bit of friction and leads to a lot of anxieties for people. And um, this was the first time I'd been in that general manager's position. Um, so it was a bit of a learning experience on that one and uh an acceptance you know if if you can't accept that that's that's what it's going to be it, it it gets very hard for you because it's going to go down to the last minute with ceremonies with so many things when we talk about ceremonies we all we often talk about the opening ceremony but you also have a closing ceremony for the olympic games and then you have an mm -hmm. opening and closing for the paralympic games why don't you tell me about those well um i'll start by saying um, as you pointed out, the opening ceremonies is is like the moment, and and everybody acknowledges that. That's the one where you have to you have to get it right, or it just it stays with you for the rest of the games. Um, so all the pressure um, in that regard really is is on that moment of the opening ceremonies, and you know the clock starts ticking at the beginning of the day, and uh, right up to where you start to see that. On the broadcast, there's always the NBC countdowns. Well, our countdown started, you know, 12 hours ago, and uh, you, you just have to meet all those uh, benchmarks. Um, for the closing, the uh, the turnaround is immediate after the opening. They generally uh, it's sort of wrapping up the the small pieces in the stadium for the ceremonies end, and um, everybody assessing and doing their reporting um there's a little bit of a breather but for ceremonies no they they're right in there starting to transition immediately um, which then means venues and and everybody else that has a piece in that uh, and then there's the build-out period and they get into rehearsals pretty quickly so the stadium uh is is never quiet it's just uh people performing different functions at different times. It's quieter. Um, and then uh, the closing is uh, generally a bit of a party. As you see, the, all the protocol pieces are very different and less prominent in the ceremonies. And uh, it's for the athletes. And uh, you saw that in Salt Lake, with all the entertainers and uh, party time. So that... Uh, 
that comes with a bit of a relief. You know, you, you've gotten past the opening, you're welcoming the closing ceremonies. And then for everybody, it's that, uh, it's that moment of look what we've accomplished. And uh, it's pretty neat. Now, but then as you pointed out, this was the first time that we had paired Paralympics with Olympic Games to share resources. So um, in this case, we had to, again, uh, transition to the, the Paralympic opening ceremonies after the Games. So again, there wasn't a lot of time. Uh, the, the transition began immediately. Um, and some big pieces were snatched and moved uh, quickly to enable uh, Paralympics, you wanted to give them as much rehearsal time in the stadium as you possibly could. Um, and, you know, they, they had a great team and, uh, you know, we really, uh, they did a, a great job, I think, transitioning that. They, there's the uh, sort of struggle with, as you pointed out earlier, the dollars and, and how the transition's going to happen and who can afford what there, because obviously Paralympics don't have the budget that the games have. All right. Well, you mentioned great team. I want to come back to team in a moment, but before I do another complicating factor for a winter games is having the ceremonies outside in outdoor venues. Some games editions, they have them in the stadium or an indoor arena. But uh, for Salt Lake City, we had them in Rice Eccles, so we had to deal with the weather as well. Any particular weather challenges that you had to deal with in the Olympic or Paralympic ceremonies? Well, um, yes. <laughs> we had uh, a very cold night for the opening ceremonies. Um, and we had snow the the evening before. So um, this gets back to, uh, I think, the culture in Utah and the support of the games where where else would you have a team of snow removal people that were additional volunteers that were ready to go and they were, you know, the night before we got some significant snow and uh, they were on it first thing in the morning. We had to clean the whole bowl out for the games. Um, so that's just one example there. Again, the show, you have the very cold uh, temperatures, and uh, you just have to be cognizant of that and uh, make sure your medical team knows that they might be in for a busy night and, uh, and hope that the messaging goes out to the audience to prepare properly. Um, and I think uh, I think it was Michelle in her podcast talked about the ice skating party we had just before Christmas that year when the ice was finally ready in, in the stadium. And that was wonderful, wonderful moment. But it might have been the coldest night we were out out there. It was uh, just one of those nights that, uh, you know, all your fingers and toes, you, you lost touch with them. It was so cold. Well, it's so funny. It's freezing cold there for the Olympic Games. In the Paralympic Games, you had rain. Uh, we did. Um, we had just an, uh, just high enough temperatures for it to be rain instead of snow, um, which sometimes feels colder than if it's dry, you know, drier and snowing. Uh, I think we had a bit of that. Um, that said, people came and, and stayed for the entire time. Um, we had... Uh, Stevie Wonder closed the, that show, and um, 
you know, my heart goes out to him because he stayed out there in the driving rain for 45 minutes and played a fantastic set for all the, all the people that had shown up and for the athletes. Uh, it was very, uh, very moving. It was for me too. I went to those ceremonies because I'm a huge Stevie Wonder fan and um, he was great and I really, really enjoyed it. But yes, you were right. It rained a lot and we were very, very wet, but, but it was totally, totally worth it. I want to come back to team now. I've had so many people on these podcasts talk about how wonderful the team was, you know, the, their peers, their, their bosses, their subordinates. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the team you had there at Rice Eccles? Well, we, um, it was a, it was a bit of a journey like these always are, uh, you know, getting the team together, the, the hiring stream of the organization doesn't always match, um, what you think would be best, but, uh, you know, it. Uh, that said, we got everybody in place in time. Um, we uh, we brought on people. We had the core team. Obviously, the the some of the key ones would be that uh, University of Utah relationships. I didn't mention Mark Burke, who's a stadium manager, and you know he was obviously our main contact there in the stadium. Um, and then we had uh, the, the venues uh, development team um, and started off with uh, Mike Osborne, who I thought was going to be our designer, but Mike had uh, had to go home, unfortunately. And um, Lisa Friedman carried the, the project for a while. Um, and then Paul Winston came in as the, the site manager and, and uh, venue development manager at the stadium. Um, and Paul was... Paul was really good. He, uh, he got it with ceremonies and, uh, you know, it's important that people understand, uh, you know, what we're trying to accomplish. And again, to me that trying to enable ceremonies is primary. Um, so I think we had a great team for that. Obviously my ops team with, uh, Michelle Thornberry, uh, Chris Kroll and Ralph Ord, um, were you know really really good and uh, Ralph was the last addition to that because he came up after Sydney games and um, was was just the perfect piece to uh, to a good building team. Um, we uh, we had the ceremonies team. Um, obviously, they're the huge players in this. And um, while Don Misher was the executive producer. Um, we worked primarily with uh, David Goldberg and Jeff Bennett and, and Kathy Erickson uh, from the ceremonies group. Um, of course, along with Scott and, and his team, Scott Gibbons. And, um, you know, that, that, that kind of, uh, and transportation, I mean, it goes on and on, you know, there's just so many functional areas that play, all of them play a, a big piece. I remember Tim Fidel came in as our, uh, logistics person, Deb McCandless and uh, transport. Um, you know, all of that is huge. And I think, again, how we function as a team, you get to, as the general manager, you get to watch the team become a team, <clears throat> hopefully have something to do with that. But, um, but it is a journey. And um, you watch different people react to pressure differently and um, different people uh, react to challenges differently. So you have to understand that about them and, and try to, uh, help them along to, uh, to, 
to get what they need and, and help them past any difficulties they're having or team members' difficulties with each other. I know there's a, there were times when people felt like we'd never get there. And, um, you know, I remember one person in particular um, had a bit of a, a meltdown and as we got close to the games. And um, the other team members uh, helped with that. And then we had a conversation a little later. And the conversation was, well, you know, we're just so at odds and so many issues. And we're, we're so close and we're still discussing all of these things. I don't know how we're going to come together as a team and, and, and you know, do what we're supposed to do. I mean, you know, I just said, I think, I think I understand what you're saying, but I think you have it wrong. What you're missing is that all of these people care every bit as much as you do, and all of them on the day are going to step up and they're going to do their job and they're going to be great and we're going to be great. And fortunately, I was right. You were, and uh, your faith in people was rewarded uh, with a wonderful ceremony and i'm not talking about just the creative aspect of the ceremony but the operation of the ceremony so uh, i give you a tremendous amount of credit for for leading that team now we've we've spent a good amount of time recalling these stories we typically wrap up with some assignments but before we do is there anything else specifically on your list that we need to get to i got a couple little little things here i'd mentioned um you know that you don't sort of account for uh, actions and results from actions. We talked about the snow. One thing I didn't mention is that as a result of the snow the night before opening ceremonies, um, we all know about the audience kits that have to be distributed and often they're seat specific or section specific. And we're talking about 58 to 60,000 of these. Obviously, the snow affected the delivery of those. So while they were able to get them into the stadium, they weren't able to put them out in the seats until the seats were clear. Um, so that set all of that way back. Um, and then that becomes a whole problem with clearing the venue because it gets late in the day and you have people starting to come to line up at the magnetometers and you still have trucks and cases and all of it. You know, that general cleanup at the last minute is always a huge thing. People arriving with trucks and nobody knows who owns them. Um, such things as a scoreboard removal. Everybody wanted, how are we going to do this and keep the secret of the ceremonies? Well, the simple answer was, we don't need to keep the secret of the ceremony. Everybody knows we're having a show here, so let's make it an event. Um, so that's exactly what uh, Slock did. They informed the media. They came up and uh, filmed the removal of the scoreboard for, for everyone to enjoy um, and enjoy the anticipation. Um, one, one memory I have, uh, that, that I would talk about for, uh, for that is, um, walking in, you know, the, uh, top executives come, the rehearsals don't necessarily happen as you see in the playbook. So, so in other words, for some of the elements that people don't want to be seen or we need to fit in because it's a high level executive and they can't do it at certain times. Um, you do late in the evening. So the night before opening, um, Mitt came up to do his piece along with Jacques Roga. And in 
you know, they'd be opening the games along with the president. And uh, it was kind of late at night and we were there and I was waiting for him. And uh, we met him in his car to walk him down into the stadium. And um, we were just chatting away and it's preoccupied, obviously. He's got a lot going on. Um, but we turned the corner to get down the uh, the ramp into the stadium and I'm looking ahead and I just look over at him and go, do you? you realize what this is going to feel like to you tomorrow night when you walk down this ramp and walk into the stadium with 60,000 people in here going crazy. And he like, he just kind of looked at me and, and kept on walking. And, and I just remember that conversation because uh, you see it again in 24 hours later and you, you know, you understand what all that means. Those are fantastic memories. Thank you so much for sharing those. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today, Ron. And to conclude our conversation, we'll get to our assignments. Uh Uh, The first one is a music assignment. You mentioned that you're in the music uh, business and the music and entertainment, Mm -hmm. uh, arts and entertainment business. So as you look back at your time in Salt Lake, is there a particular song or a, a group that if you hear them today, it immediately takes you back to Salt Lake City? Um, You know, it's funny. It was a tough one for me. Um, Although I'm around music all the time, I I don't listen to the radio that much and and what's going on there. It's more what I'm doing at the time because I'm I'm in the industry. And um, there was so much going on in the games and, and, you know, so many things to get through. Um, My experience may have been a little different. that said, there's there's a couple things that uh, I'd like to point out, um, and I think one already we've talked about, which is Stevie Wonder. So you can say any Stevie Wonder song, and uh, I am good with that. But um, I did think of um, Macy Gray and I Try. Um, my wife Debbie and I managed to get down to Metal's Plaza one evening, and we did see Macy Gray, and I loved that song, and. Uh, it's one that was in my brain for a long time. Well, I'm thrilled to put Stevie Wonder on the playlist and also Macy Gray. Those are great additions. Uh, we've got a Spotify playlist and all of our listeners can just go on to Spotify and look at that playlist and see all of the songs that everybody has nominated. So thank you so much, Ron, for sharing those. Now let's talk about food. There are some great places to eat there near Rice Eccles. There's also places downtown Salt Lake and elsewhere. Any particular restaurant that you like to frequent when you were there in Salt Lake? Um, well, our favorite was Red Iguana. I mean, we, we just loved the food there. That's where we tell everybody if you, if they're going out to Salt Lake City, you, you really have to go to Red Iguana. It is. And in fact, there's actually now a Red Iguana 2. Oh, really? Right around the block, because it's about a block away from the original Red Iguana. They, the same owner opened up a second restaurant called Red Iguana 2 because the original Red Iguana is so popular. Yeah. And uh, I'm with you. It is one of my absolute favorites. Well, that was the, the, the problem with it. It was hard to get in there, especially when you were busy and you didn't couldn't wait in line for an hour. We've got Red Iguana on the list already, and I'm going to emphasize it once again. Yeah. When this COVID pandemic abates and we're all able to go crowd into restaurants, that's the first restaurant I'm going to go back to and crowd into because I love the mole. Okay, to wrap us up, what's your goosebump moment? Uh, well, it's hard to sort all of that with all of the uh, the wonderful portions of the ceremonies. Um, you know, it's funny with ceremonies. I 
while the show goes on right in front of me, and in this case as general manager, you got your mind on so many other things and you're focusing on what's happening after the ceremonies um, that I, I miss a lot of that or just aren't focused in on it other than a benchmark in time. Um, but I will say that morning, I, I told you earlier, I think that I uh, we had snow the night before, yes. Um, and I got up very early in the morning, got up to the, the stadium, uh, like around five in the morning. I like when it's show day, I like to do that anyway. It gives you decompression time and to assess your day and what's in front of you. And it's always very quiet to have a walk around and just see what's what's what. Um, so I went up and got through the mags and got in and uh, just got into the venue and very still quiet, snow on the ground. I'm inside the fences now. And I look over across from me, probably 30 yards is a, a deer. Now, this is a full-size deer. And we're in the middle of the campus there, in the middle of the chaos and village that we've brought on campus. And this deer is standing there by himself, and we we stand there and look at each other for probably a good 30 seconds, just in the still and quiet. Then he turns, and I'm thinking, now how are you going to get out of here? This is not good. No problem. He went over the six-foot fence, and then he went over the 10-foot fence and was off. But to me, that that peaceful moment was like a connection, and I felt like everything was going to be okay. Um, that's my moment. That's an awesome moment. I love that. A deer in the middle of rice eccles on the day of opening ceremonies. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't get any better than that. That is so awesome. Ron, again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate you sharing all of your stories. Now, if people want to connect with you on social media or other ways uh, and share their memories of Salt Lake 2002, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably for me would be the old-fashioned email, and it's uh, roncameron at comcast.net. Perfect. Thank you so much, Ron. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. Ron, once more, thank you. Uh, my pleasure. 